he's going to get super wealthy and buy you several homes. And, you know, congratulations, auntie and uncle. You, you <laughs> Meanwhile, I'm like, mom, dad, I'm going to leave De Beers uh, before they pay McKinsey back. And I am going to take a $160,000 student loan. And then I'm going to become a jeweler. Hi, auntie. Hi, uncle. <laughs> Hello, hello. Welcome to Ami Tuckered Out. I am your host, Ami Tucker Ravel. And today's episode was pretty epic. We actually had to pop some champagne for it. My guest and I have been trying to make this happen for a while. And not only is my guest a trailblazer, he's a friend of mine, and he's one of those rare business leaders who, you know, is ambitious and smart and has done really well for himself. But he's also one of those guys that follows his heart. Zamir Kassam is the founder and CEO of Zamir Kassam Fine Jewelry. In 2015, the Beard Group entered a partnership with ZK Fine Jewelry, offering exclusive access to their most rare and precious diamonds. Zamir continues to be a member of the Rock 100, the 100 fastest growing startups founded by alums of the Harvard Business School and has been featured in, I don't know, everything. The New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, People Magazine, and Vogue. I mean, you name it. Most recently, his story and business have become a Harvard Business School case, which is very exciting. The case focuses on how he will not only survive through this pandemic, but will thrive. We talk childhood stories about the diamond industry, about the thrill of working with friends and telling their story as well as celebrities, and bringing attention to their causes. And of course, we talk about love. So grab a glass of your fave drinks, guys. We're talking diamonds. You're listening to Tuckered Out with Ami. This is Josh Radner from How I Met Your Mother and other TV shows and other things. (laughs) I don't know, maybe you can use something like that. when I did the Time's Up ring. And then we have on this side, Lupe Nyong'o. That was her official Vanity Fair photo when I did her for the first Oscars. The second Oscars, she has another photo, which is even better. But I feel like the first is always the one you remember the most. Yeah, I like it. So, okay, childhood. Because all my guests are South Asian, I love hearing the immigration story of our parents. So what's your parents' story? How did they immigrate to Canada? How did they get there? Yeah, so my parents' immigration story is very different from all of my South Asian friends here in the U.S. So I always get asked if it was a typical South Asian upbringing. I'm like, definitely not. My parents were refugees from East Africa. My mother is fifth generation Tanzanian, Zanzibari, my father's first generation. But they associated much more being Tanzanian. And so in 1971, when Idi Amin came and repatriated Uganda for the Black Africans, it led to all the strife in Tanzania. And so my parents got me the first couple of planes There's a bit of a story of how they're separated for a few years because they physically had to get on different planes. But they got to Vancouver, Canada, started a new life, gave up all of the work and all the successes that they'd had in Tanzania. And they basically worked in convenience stores and did everything they could. When I was born, my mother was was cooking food at home and babysitting and selling that food to some of the moms. My 
My father was a real estate agent. He was also doing all these other things. So when I grew up, I think that many of our friends here in New York, their parents were lawyers and doctors and professionals and all their uncles are doctors. <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah. Yep. My family, everyone was just struggling to make ends meet. And this extended to my aunts and uncles and like all of the broader family. And so my upbringing was much more in a Tanzanian Indian vibe. You know, we would eat barbecued meats. We wouldn't have Gujarati food. We would, they would speak Swahili and Kachi and not like Gujarati pure. And if they watched Hollywood movies, it was because they had that cultural upbringing in East Africa, but it wasn't the same kind of like, oh, I recognize that India. It was more like, you know, it was this magical, mystical place to all of my family. Right. And think about where I grew up. Vancouver is not a Gujarati-centric place. Vancouver is an immigrant's central. And so I grew up next door to Sandy Singh Basi, Sandy Kaur Basi, which is, of course, Punjabi. And then down the street, we had a South Indian person. I didn't know that India was so Hindi-centric. I grew up thinking it was Punjabi-centric and Swahili. <laughs> yeah, totally. It don't make any sense. It was only my first time that I went to India, and I realized how non-Indian I actually am. And I felt very ashamed of that. But that's part of the reason I decided to move to India at one of my first jobs. Well, so that, that moment where I felt I was so not Indian exposed a second ignorance of mine, thinking that Bombay was India. And then I lived in India, as you know, working for MTV Networks for a couple of years, and I did acquisitions of local language channels across the entire country. So I got to go to Punjab and look at Bale Bale, which was their Punjabi station. I got to go to South India and look at Southern Spice. And I realized that the Indian continent, like that, it's, it's just an incredible country that feels like it's bigger than the continent of Canada with all the cultures and languages and honestly, all the stories, the story, culture and tradition and now, you know, as we're going to speak, I guess, later, the number of Indians who have designed pieces for to tell their stories has showed me how unique and diverse this vast country and its cultures are. It is. And I, I mean, I don't know how long you were there. Three, I was there three years. I was just the tip of the iceberg trying to understand that country and culture. So your parents had a jewelry store then. How did that start? Yeah. So, so my parents started the jewelry store with my brother in, in 1984. It was a random thing, but as I kind of alluded to earlier, my mother was cooking food and selling it to the moms of the kids she was babysitting. My father was selling real estate. My brother at the same time was doing a bunch of jobs. He was, I think, 18 years old. He was parking cars and parking lots. A uh, courier in downtown Vancouver. All of these three people had very people-facing jobs. And so they interacted with a lot. At the same time, my uncle, who used to have a jewelry store in Tanzania, he had a jewelry store in Toronto. He was going out of business and he sent a bunch of jewelry to my mother and said, if you can sell this, keep the profit because I can't sell it here anyhow. And through the, the interactions with the mothers of the kids, through the interactions with the families who were getting real estate and the people in downtown Vancouver, my brother was delivering packages to, the three of them managed to sell the first lot of jewelry. And for them, this little immigrant family, $300, $500 was a huge amount of money to make in one sale, one day. And that sort of started this chain where they asked for more pieces, they sold more pieces. Now, keep in mind that in the early 80s in Vancouver and a lot of the world, you had two options for jewelry. You either went to Cartier, Harry Winston, Tiffany and spent huge amounts of money on something, or you bought it in a Sears catalog and it was super, super cheap, usually not even real. And there's nothing really in the middle. There's nothing to democratize jewelry for people who were middle class. Now, that's a time when the middle class was really evolving all over the world, especially in Canada. And so they started off by having a little store in the basement of our house. 
with little handmade, you know, signs and little hand printed. What was the name of it? It was in my brother's name, my brother and my uncle's name, Shamin. So Shaharaz and Hanim, Shamin. And so it just became this little room. And then from that room, my brother started a store on Victoria Drive in Vancouver, which has a very heavy Italian and Greek and Mediterranean immigrant presence. Right. So my parents, and this is such a story of immigrant families. But I remember growing up, my mother was not Farida, it was Frida. My father was not Ramzan, he was Ron. And they would, they people thought they were Italian because they can speak the basic Italian. They were selling the Corda del Battissimo medallions for baptisms. It was just a crazy world of culture that I grew up in through the lens of jewelry. And it was every night and every weekend for many years. Through the years, it grew into a mall-based business. My brother was quite successful in the business. And I got to experience what I think was an incredible like uh, apprenticeship right. history that I never imagined then would become my entire life and much less my passion. Right, it was right. A way to grow. And I was going to ask you during that time. I mean, as a teenager, did you enjoy this, or was it more like shit? I have to do it, or like it's a family business. There's no choice. I will say, at the time, I didn't have a choice. It wasn't right. that my parents forced me. It was just what you did. Like, how could right. you not go? You know that the family needs you. You know that that's putting bread on the table. And there was no like black box. It wasn't like okay, I work there, and then three months later, there's something on the table. On a Saturday, working from 8 a.m. to 8 p.m. in Metrotown Center Mall, if I brought in, let's say, $6,000 or $3,000 worth of sales, I could see that night what the profit was on those pieces. And we knew exactly what that meant for our family in terms of like, well, let's go out to dinner. You know, let's celebrate by buying something. Or more often than not, if the numbers weren't great, because in retail, you have 80% of your days are kind of crappy. And you wait for those 20% that are exciting. You just know, okay, well, this is another day that I'm just going to suck it up and move on to tomorrow. And yeah. so the connection between our family and where they were and the few hours I was putting, admittedly, I was one of you know, 20 employees. And my parents and my brother were there all the time, far more impactful. But like I was a kid and I felt like that's what I do. And I didn't miss the socializing with friends. I didn't miss not playing any sports. I'm probably like less athletic as a result. You know? Well, that's what I was going to say. As a kid, having that awareness and like, that commitment to your family. I mean, that's not that common when you're that age, you know. I think that's fantastic that you did it. I know it was a family business and you were the youngest of three, right? I'm the youngest of four. Youngest of four. So you had probably like all of all of us younger children, younger child youngest child syndrome, right? Where kind of the older siblings do more and you kind of get away with more, right? Yeah, I mean, I look, I definitely got away with more, but right. I also felt like as the youngest child I liked attention. I like to feel important. I was not someone who, as I mentioned, I wasn't an athlete. So I wasn't a jock in high school. I wasn't the smartest kid in high school. I wasn't the most popular or social, but what I was, was this polished kid who you could throw into an environment and could talk like an adult because of the work that I was doing at the family store. And so I got to do things that are crazy. Like when I was 16, I represented our family business, the CIBC, which is a Canadian bank's competition. I got to travel all over to do buying trips for the stores. And that meant that I was meeting people from Dubai and from India and from Africa. So from that perspective, it fed, you know, the beast of my youngest kid syndrome. Yeah, of course. And then college, where did you go to college? And did that change your point of view in the world? Were you able to kind of get out and experience other things? You know, college was an incredible experience for me, but it wasn't because of the academics, or even because of the social, both of which were important, I can get to in a second. 
the thing no one knows is I got into UBC, which is University of British Columbia, on a full scholarship. And that okay. happened because I broke up with my ex-girlfriend in my very last year of high school. I mean, we'd been together for the whole of high school. And when you break up with someone you've been with through this whole time, my my go-to was just to dive into schoolwork and study. And so I did far better in my second half of my grade 12 year to get into these schools. But one of my classmates, Ryan Lau, who ultimately didn't go to Western, applied for me to go to Western, University of Western Ontario, because he didn't want to apply well. It was a very random thing. I ended up getting in, didn't have a scholarship, but I went to visit a few friends of mine there and I realized how big the world was. When I went to a school outside of my home city and actually realized that there were so many people that I needed, such a diversity of cultures and such a life that I could potentially live, I, I accepted it. I ended up going there. I was there for two years before I applied to the business school there. I got into the business school there. And getting into the business school there was probably the, the first major step that put me on a path to where I am today. You may know it's, it's an undergraduate program that's modeled out of Harvard Business School. And I didn't know what consulting and banking was. You know, I didn't know what McKinsey or Bain or BCG were. Right. It was at that time that I realized if I worked even harder, I could actually have a chance at these jobs that I, I didn't know existed. But now that I know, they're so exciting. Yeah. To travel, to work with CEOs, to, you know, be someone who's so important at 21. Like, my God, I was so excited. And that's what kind of got me to double down on that. Right. And try to get one of those jobs. Right. So in your 20s then, so in your 20s was McKinsey and MTV India, right? And then while you were at the amazing HBS getting your MBA, you started thinking about getting back into jewelry. And I think I read in one of the many articles that you're in that you were kind of inspired by friends of yours that were either proposing or thinking about proposing and that wanted to do something unique and had no idea what they were doing and kind of a combination of things. And you were seeing that and you realized there was a big hole to fill there. Is that kind of how it started? Absolutely. The view before that, when you think of a guy, and I'm going to speak most in the heteronormative way because 90% right. of rings are so. When you think of a guy who's about to propose to the woman he loves, it sounds like such an exciting moment in his life, and it is. But it's also the most anxiety-inducing, incredibly stressful moment as he has to imagine not just what he can afford and what that's good enough for her, but what will she like? What will her family think of this? We're South Asians, where a lot of our moms and sisters are involved in the process and when they're not involved, they get upset about that. So it's like, who do I involve? How do I involve them? And unfortunately, the jewelry industry has been designed to make people feel more stressed out, to make people feel more insecure. And I've hated that since the days that I was in it. And so when I was at McKinsey and MTV, and even when I was an undergrad in HBS, not ever imagining I'd be in the jewelry industry, I was so happy to run workshops for friends of mine to just learn the basics of diamonds and the trade-offs of beauty and value are optimized, although we didn't even call it that back then. Just so you didn't get screwed. And let's be clear, like you would walk into even stores of people that I knew and the store staff didn't know, but they're actually trained to screw people. And so I wanted to take the information that was unbiased. I didn't, I wasn't selling anything to any of these people at that time and just give them the knowledge to walk into a store and feel empowered to at least not get swindled. That was what started me. So I was running these little sessions and blah, blah, blah. And then people would say, well, can you help me with the setting? And I'd say, yeah. So I remember going to New York's Diamond District for the first time with my friend Huyan. 
and helping him find a setting. For Puyon! You know, no, you know Puyon already. Of course, of course. So <laughs> we have so many friends in common. I know, I know. Um, yeah, so Puyon and Nada, Puyon was the first setting. And that's when I went with Neta and Puyon was kind of on the phone and we went to some random place and I was inspecting and I was thinking, okay, this is the best I can do for them right now. Is this the best that they should be able to achieve? I didn't know what I would do in the future, but at that moment it started another little moment of thinking for me. And then friends were asking, well, what if you actually made the settings? I called my parents, they put me in touch with people in New York, and I started to kind of ad hoc make settings, really kind of simple things, stick a crimson, you know, ruby on the inside because they met at HBS, put 10 diamonds on the sides because they met on December 10th. Like just very basic things. And honestly, I mean, at that time, I didn't imagine that it was even that, interesting or distinct an idea it was like let's make it more fun like why wouldn't you want your tuxedo to be lined with your favorite color why wouldn't you want certain ingredients in the food that you happen to like like this is not rocket science this is just right bring things to you i think people want it they don't know they want it and they don't know how to get that kind of stuff and who to go to so like you're filling in all these needs that people like what do we how do we get this done you know it is such a scary industry to like figure out and it continues to be scarier by the day. Oh, I'm sure. Better since then. So when did so when did when were you at De Beers? When was your internship there? Well, so during the summer between first and second year, I decided that I was not going to go back to McKinsey. I had the offer to go back to McKinsey, and that was like what I'd worked quite hard for because they paid for my MBA in HBS. And so I had to go back to McKinsey for several years, otherwise I would have a hundred and sixty thousand dollars student loan payout. Uh huh. Given that <laughs> off, so. I decided to try my hand at working at this joint venture between De Beers and Louis Vuitton. There's a gentleman by the name of Imran Ahmed who works for the business of fashion. And he introduced me to, he's a friend of mine from way back, and one of my oldest friends. And he introduced me to this woman, Alia Nedengadi Kanji, who is the head of marketing. And I say that because she's now one of my good friends and clients. But I ended up interning for them, and I had an amazing experience. My second year, second semester, I decided to spend at least three or four weeks in Botswana to do a project for HBS understanding what was happening in the, in the mining industry and where the diamonds are actually coming from, just to be able to stand up for, you know, the industry and its impact on the people of these mining countries, should I get asked in the future. I had no idea how controversial the diamond industry would become, but my role and the fact that I've been on the ground in these mines and written the research for Harvard has become very helpful along that path. But finishing that project in second year of Harvard Business School, I decided to take a full-time job with De Beers with Vuitton. I was at Bridal and Plastics Business Unit. It was a retail joint venture. They had 50 stores around the world. And it was it was a wild ride. I'm sure. I'm, I'm sure you have many epic stories from that, which I wish we could, if we had enough time, we will, we'll get to the next podcast part too. And then at this at this time, were your parents super excited that you, you went kind of went back to the family business? Well, my parents never wanted me to go back to the family business. Oh, okay. They recognized how much work it is to be an entrepreneur and to come every day and open the stores and close the stores. I mean, they're very grateful for everything you gave them and gave me and I am. Right. But I don't think they ever want to be a collective town business. In fact, and I'm sure they're going to listen to this podcast and they will agree that they never wanted me to be a jeweler. They wanted me to follow the Harvard business school career path. Imagine you have four children, the youngest of which goes to HBS and you tell your friends in Vancouver especially in our Ismaili community where many people prioritize education in Canada right. more than other parts of the Indian diaspora. 
And everyone says the same thing. He's going to become an investment banker, then he's going to go to a hedge fund. Meanwhile, parents don't understand what a hedge fund is. I don't actually think most people understand what an investment banker is. But you have McKinsey, Finance and MTV, HBS. He's going to get super wealthy and buy you several homes. And, you know, congratulations, auntie and uncle. You, you <laughs> Meanwhile, I'm like, mom, dad, I'm going to leave De Beers uh, before they pay McKinsey back. And I am going to take out $160,000 student loan. And then I'm going to become a jeweler. Hi, Andy. Hi, Uncle. <laughs> they, were, they were not. I mean, look, at the end of the day, if I were my parents, I would be sitting to me down and saying, listen, let's pay that off first. Let's take the like the responsible route. And then let's do this thing that's called following our dreams, because that's not a responsible action. And I get it. But they yeah. were supportive. I mean, they were never going to stop me along that path. They were just kind of confused and like a little bit surprised. But I, I think, think my parents are still confused. And I think that's, that's a story for a lot of us. I think a lot a lot of our parents at that time, I, I think it's changing now, but it was hard for them to understand for those of us that wanted to follow our passions and dreams that those passions and dreams weren't being a lawyer or engineer or a doctor or investment banker. And so because I think, our, like you said, like your, your parents' story, they came here trying to make it day to day. So for them, they wanted to do something that was logical. Right. And they didn't want you, obviously, they didn't want you to see you struggle. So I get it. And I think that's all of our stories. But guess what, mom and dad, it worked out. So it's fine. When I think of your brand and company, I'm thinking a few things. I'm thinking personalizing jewelry. I'm thinking telling a story within a ring or a piece of jewelry. And then one thing I, I read that I really liked was that it's like you're creating an heirloom for that particular couple or family, which is amazing. And so you launched in 2011. And then your process works, from what I read, in three main steps. Can you kind of like describe those? Yeah. So look, as I mentioned earlier, buying a ring sucks for most people. And there's tons of people involved. It's many hours that it takes. So what I wanted to do is make it very simple, turn it on its head, make it more about the relationship, the story, and take out all the stuff that's really stressful. So there's three steps. Each step takes between 30 minutes and an hour. The first step is what we call the tutorial where we share what we think are the best ways to maximize beauty and value in a diamond. Ideally, focusing on the trade-offs to make sure that the person is able to get the best deal. And this can be dramatic, right? You can go to your family jeweler and get something that is really cheap-looking, but also, sorry, cheap-sounding and cheap-looking. You can go to a luxury brand and spend a lot of money, and it actually doesn't look so beautiful. If you know the very specific ways to, to create trade-offs within this equation, you can really come on it. I think for two, is the best step. I mean, obviously, I'm wildly biased. That's what we call the discovery. This is where myself or one of the storytellers on our team will learn the basic elements of the client's love story. It's only an hour and it's a simple conversation. I promise you, every single man or woman who's in love has been so excited to share the bits and pieces of how they met, share a little bit about why this person kept them excited to become official, what some of those milestones were and leading up to what is the biggest you know, question he's about to ask someone in his life? And that to us is honestly why we do it. That leads to the third step, which is what we call the storytelling. And this is where we share three options of diamonds that we leverage our, the De Beers is a partner in the business, we leverage our vast network of diamond companies and our tech systems that are not on the market to share three options on the low end to the high end of the budget that are extraordinary. Like literally the most beautiful of beautiful and squarely at that trade-off where beauty and value are optimized. Then we share the handmade sketches. Your audience can see I'm holding them right now, but the handmade sketches 
I'm going to interrupt you because I, you know, looking through your IG and and I've seen some of your sketches on on these articles. I mean, they look artistic. It like, have you been sketching your whole life? Like, how did this happen? <laughs> they look amazing. It's so funny. I mean, I grew up with a mom who used to doodle uncontrollably. My father, bless him, would get so angry because it would ruin every piece of paper that he ever had. But then I would sit there and I'd have, you know, my own pieces of paper, and I'd sit there and doodle, and my mom could never get mad because she would doodle as well. It never, ever, I mean, was meant to be a, a real career or something of this magnitude. I never got trained when I was at De Beers Louis Vuitton. The number of times they would tell me. That I'm never going to be a designer because I didn't have the classical training. It really played a role in my lack of confidence to become a designer. But over time, when you sketch and you sketch in a way that I think is digestible, especially for people who aren't jewelry connoisseurs, or like architecture, it doesn't look like a jewelry sketch. And somehow that actually helped because you can understand what the ring is going to look like. My team can understand what the ring should look like, and ultimately the gentleman on my team who's going to actually build this ring can understand what it's going to look like. And that is much simpler than some of the traditional jewelry sketches. Right. This was the combination of now tens of thousands of sketches that I've done over the years. And in every sketch, I think I get you know, and I, I think I'm far from the best artist. I mean, far, far, far from even an average jewelry artist. But I'm far better than I was. It. They are fantastic. I feel like you need to frame these. To me, I, I, I'm not an artist, but it's, they seem very artistic and. I mean, I don't know. I don't know enough about the, the industry. Is this common? Do people do sketches like this? So two things are extremely not common. Number one, no one does this. Number two, no one shares this. So everything is done by computer-aided design CAD, and it's literally done offshore, China or India. And so when people think they're getting a custom-made ring, they're just getting something that is usually pre-made and just happens to fit the bill. But in a smaller percent of cases, let's say 20%, it's a truly custom-made ring, it's cobbled together components using computer aid design. And I'm not knocking that. There's nothing wrong with that. It is a cheaper method. It results in cheaper quality, but most people won't even understand that or honestly care about that. From my perspective, if you have this beautiful love story, why wouldn't you want to sketch it to life and the design and ultimately have a ring that embodies all of these elements, but also is the culmination of this like hand artistry. It, I know. To me, it's, it's worth it. You know, it's worth the time and the effort. And, if it doesn't cost any more, the business model can support doing things in a more human and connected way, then why wouldn't we want to do it? And I think that in the beginning, I, I can share any of the sketches. We used to just make a ring. But over time, we get to this third step now, the storytelling step, which is where we will share the sketches that bring the story to life through design. And what we find in those moments is just, it's so emotional for the person proposing because he will have shared the love story. He will have looked at the diamonds and chosen the diamond with us. He will have sent us photos and videos sometimes of a relationship as part of an optional research stage. And this is the moment that he sees his love story. No one else's. His words come to life in the design of a ring. He is going to propose to the woman that he loves who will someday be the mother of his children and have this adventure of a life. There is nothing more beautiful than that moment. That just gave me goosebumps. And and <laughs> I know, I'm like, uh, uh, but I mean, like also most men generally aren't as involved with the process of the wedding and, and all that stuff. It's mostly, you know, it, it mostly is the girl. And so I think this is fantastic that it gives the guy a minute to pause and like really think and emotionally invest in this process because it is a stressful process. And 
this to me seems like it's just fun and exciting, especially for the guy. Well, yeah, look, I mean, I think that we are like an enabler, but we're like the hitch of engagement. So we will coach the guy through the process. We will hold the pen. We'll de-risk the whole thing. So we'll share the diamond information. We'll share the pricing information of competitors because everyone wants that deal. We're proud. Right. Our model of having no stores and no marketing inventory, we can't have more pricing. But then the most exciting part is that we'll even sometimes coach them on the proposal. You know, you're going to take this ring and it has so much more than just a ring. Who cares about our ring? This is like the ring of your love story. So right. we're going to help you think about how to make it the most emotional moment of her life. And then we even spend time with her afterwards to make sure she understands what he did for her and the emotion right. that he put in and the time that he put in. And honestly, I mean, if there's anything about it that she doesn't like, including the whole ring, we'll take that. We'll start from scratch. But that's amazing. Well, and that's honestly like that to me is the ultimate in de-risking the process. If you can give someone this much romance, surprise her in a way that she never imagined she would be surprised. And in that 0.1% probability, we got something wrong as a, as a collaboration between he and I and my team, we fix it. Yeah. Why would any designer or brand want to ring on anyone's hand that isn't the ultimate dream? No, that's amazing. And out of curiosity, have you had any women, female clients? Yeah, like people proposing. in general proposing. Well, we've never had a woman propose to a man. That's what I was asking. Okay, we had we had a woman who created a band to propose to him at the same time. Okay, proposed to her, and that okay. that was a very like clear and deliberate conversation they had as pure equals in the course of their life. That's They're amazing. Eastern European, kind of more Scandinavian by nature, so it fit very well with their story. Okay, we had about twenty five percent of our clients of our couples. The woman is very involved from the beginning. Right. So that's a little dance where we want to make sure we get the download of everything that she wants, make her feel engaged and connected with the process, but keep her far enough so we can ultimately give her the romantic surprise of her life. Right. That is very important to me. It's so hard. Like when a woman comes and says, I want to design a ring on my own for myself, that's really tough because no, I can't sure. learn the story of your love from you. Yeah. Speed the love from him or from you to him or together. So it's a completely different shape if you do it by yourself. So, and I think when people hear custom design and, and diamonds and jewelries, they think expensive and takes a long time and it's only for rich people. So what would you say to that? Well, look, the Harvard Business School case that comes out right now, they did an assessment on our pricing and they independently found that we're 30 to 80% below competitors in our quality criteria set. So what I would say is that we tend to be the most competitively priced for this level of quality. If you're going to look at quality for subpar, you know, if you're comparing two cars and one's from Honda and the other one's from Mercedes-Benz, I don't think that's going to work even if it's in the same category. But if you're looking at two, you know, options that are very similarly qualified, we always come up more competitive. And that's again, because our business model is designed to take out all the rubbish that we don't need the inventory that sits in the stores, the stores themselves, and all the staff and all the debt that you would need to hold that. On the timing, it's honestly been, and I hate to say this, especially because COVID and the pandemic has been a horrible time for so many people, but one of the silver linings of the pandemic has been that we have changed our production process. We were able to make a ring in as little as two or three weeks before. Now we can make a ring in as little as one week. Wow. Unbelievable to me, but by moving people to where they can work from home and actually be much more sort of effective and flexible. And then leveraging, honestly, a lot of FedEx and a lot of in-city couriers, we are doing things in a faster way. So 
you know, the typical guy spends 21 hours researching a ring and then three to six weeks actually deciding on it. Three hours in our process and then a week to make it the minimum. So three hours in one week, far less than 21 hours in three to six weeks. So what I would say is if you feel like you're thinking of doing something special for her, something that's a little bit different than buying a ring from a store online, I think it would be well worth your time to contact us or someone like us. I don't really love to be the guy that does this for everyone forever, but I care more that people do something thoughtful versus thoughtless, even if it's not with me. Right, right. So, I mean, that goes to my next question. You guys have been now around 10 years, 10 plus years. Do you see a lot of jewelers kind of emulating what you're doing? And if so, how are you staying relevant? Like, what are you doing that's unique? Well, I, look, I hope every jeweler does what we do, right? Like, at the end of the day, if every woman was proposed, and every man was proposed to with a ring that was thoughtful and special, then that's the holy grail, right? Like, no generic, thoughtless ring should exist in the dream world that I fantasize about. Now, that said, I recognize we're a company. We have to earn a profit. We have a team, an incredible team, the most extraordinary people I've ever had the honor of working with. And they deserve to earn a living and that living should grow over time. So, you know, we are a company and we are continuing to, to try to push the envelope on our own process. So I would say that we're seeing everyone now do some form of personalization. Right. They're thinking of, you know, you can stick a stone inside on a birthday. You can go on a website, you can upload the place you met and you get the coordinates. And that's cute and sweet and I like that. But what we do is so much more personal. And right. there's two big differences and then I can tell you what we're trying to change. But the one yeah. big difference is that the product that comes out as a result of it is so deeply, deeply detailed, hidden, you know, hidden details of the love story that it can only be made through the process that we follow and learn the nuances and nothing right. kind of simple and basic and common. But I think number two, which is the most exciting part for our clients and why we're such a, an engine of referrals, is that the process is the secret sauce. Right. The process is so exciting and so fun. And personalized. And personalized just... and meaningful for the guy. Right. When he proposes to her with this ring that he poured his heart into, even just over three hours, that was you know one hour at a time over three weeks, she can feel it when she opens the box and sees his eyes tearing up. She can feel it when she sits down with him and us and we share that story. Yeah. That process is really, really hard to emulate in a way that one of these big brands on Fifth Avenue or one of the online brands would ever be able to scale with. Right. They just want the cheapest, easiest thing to replicate as many times as possible to make a lot of money and exit. That's right. The opposite of what we want. I'm never selling this business. It's not something I built to sell. This is a passion. It's surprisingly become a successful business and we're growing, we're hiring people. But I think the thing that we're trying to do more and the, the HPS case actually uh, is the core of this, is we're trying to think about how we can move certain aspects of the process to online or telephone methods to actually deepen that part of it. So are there certain things you can do online, especially learning from COVID and pandemic times, that people are enjoying doing online. It's not taking away from the, from the experience, actually adding to the experience with the added benefit of reducing the amount of human hours that need to be on it so that we, storytellers and people who meet with clients, can double down on the okay. process that are so rich and so not replicable. You mentioned 
uh, Botswana. You spent time there between year one and year two at HBS. And so you've also partnered with Forevermark, correct? So can you tell me a little bit about that partnership and kind of how that's helped shape the business? Absolutely. So let's remember that the jewelry industry has a large history. And as someone from East Africa, I'm very aware and very researched on the Mar history. We've all seen the movies. We've all read the blogs. And it was important to me that I could stand behind what was happening in the industry, not in the past, but what was going forward. So when I went to, to Botswana as part of that social enterprise initiative with Harvard Business School, it was explicitly to understand what was happening on the ground of this country, which is the most productive diamond mining country in the world. And I left that experience very positive about the value that the diamond industry is having for that country. For example, more than 95% of the value of diamonds goes back to that country. Everyone's primary and secondary school is paid for by diamonds. Universal healthcare, it's been a democracy since the 1960s in Southern Africa, which is not the shining example of a region of the world where there is such great democracy. So I left that feeling very positive. Ten years later, I decided to go back because I wanted to know what had happened in this original effort that I'd heard about around transparency and traceability in the diamond industry. So there's a lot that I can unpack about Forevermark. Right. A lot about the diamonds being the most rare and the most beautiful. But the main thing that matters to me is that these are currently the most traceable diamonds in the world. With wow. Transparent supply chains, some of which literally have signatures of every person that's touched them from the mind to the finger. Now, if I believe that this country is a shining example of development in the world, in the world of diamonds. And if I believe that selling and offering diamonds from these specific mines will make me and my clients feel better about what they're you know, creating and telling stories as heirlooms, and I know that Fermanmark has the majority of their diamonds coming from this one country, specifically that mine, being a partner of theirs was a no-brainer. Thankfully, I have worked for De Beers, so I was able to leverage that relationship. And what it means practically is that we generally tend to use more diamonds that are traceable and transparent for our clients. Now, not every case is that possible to have a Fremenmark diamond, but when it's not, we still have access to all of the beers non-Fremenmark diamonds and all of the other options that are also non-conflict. But it does, I mean, look, it's so fun when I have a client and I can share with them that this diamond is not only the top 0.1% of the world, an amazing value. I've been to the mine where it's on earth. I've been on the ground. I know the people and I went back last year. So from that perspective, I think it connects this wildly beautiful love story, my sketches, with a diamond that's responsible and kind of worthy of that story and all that. Yeah, I mean, you literally have your hands in the dirt. That's, yeah. that, that counts. You have to. I mean, when yeah. people in any industry haven't gone to the place where their materials are being unearthed or where their, you know, the, the garments are being sewn or the food is being cropped and grown... That to me is a tragedy. It's a responsibility. It's an expectation. Well, I think that there's a lot of misconception around what ethically sourced is and what, what kind of yeah. connotates as being environmentally friendly and not. Right, right. The diamond industry itself has been very opaque for a number of generations. Okay. I think a lot of the people that have worked in, have worked in the industry have kind of become accustomed to that and the customers have never asked about it. I think that the last 20 years, people have started to ask about social impact in some of the countries where diamonds are coming from asking about where rings are made. You know, when the pandemic struck, a lot of the luxury brands had to stop selling because most of their jewelry is actually made in Asia. It's not made in Europe. They just don't tell you that. We make everything in New York because that's what we do. So we didn't have to stop production. I mean, 
it's these things that you see in the actual actions of the company that tell you more about them. Material. And I think today with social media and a much more empowered youthful audience, people are asking the questions that matter. And right. you should and don't stop and push right. harder. I need right. to push harder. I want to get to a place where we are far deeper than we even are today in transparency and traceability. And we will, because at least I know Forever Mark is on that same mission with me. That's awesome. So I'm going to get to the fun stories. Okay. Celebrities. we got to talk a little celebrity. And I know you've had many, many fantastic clients that are mutual friends. Hasan Minaj, Lupita, okay, I'm going to totally demolish her last name. Lupita, everyone knows who she is. Ashley Judd, Constance Wu. Talk about one of them, one of the experiences. I know you have the, the pictures behind the wall. So just, I read the People mag, uh, Magazine article on Hassan, which was fantastic. The Time's Up ring for Ashley Judd. And Lupita, I mean, like, it's all sounds, one of them. What, pick one. Uh, I get goosebumps thinking about all of them, but I think- I know. I know since, since this is a South Asian podcast, I should yeah. be Hassan, right? Okay. Yeah. Like, so let's be clear. I don't have cable. And I know I've said this in, in the People Magazine article. I can't believe I said this, but I, I knew who he was by name. I knew what he did, but I hadn't actually seen him in action. So when I met him for the first time, we met at a, at a cafe that was close to his studio. And I knew that he wanted to build this room for Vina. And I didn't know anything about their love story. And I genuinely didn't really know how. Well, first, how did he get, how did he know to contact you? So his stylist, whose name is Sandy Lyon, so Sandy Lyon, uh, All right. Canadian, New York-based stylist. She works with Bina. Bina had been looking online and she wanted a ring that represented more than just a ring. She wanted a ring that was a little bit more meaningful and special. Right. Yeah, Sandy looked for things in somewhere between the two of them. And I don't know the full story, but maybe she can tell you on a future podcast. Yeah. They read about me and they read about what I did. I think okay. that from there, Sandy reached out and I had never worked with her, her you know, worked with Sandy before. And so we went back and forth a little bit. And then she said, well, if you're up for meeting him, he's going to be available on this day. And I said, sure. And so I met with him. And, you know, when you meet a celebrity and there's, again, I've met a number of them. I'm lucky enough to meet, for example, the Oscars, you know, agent. whatever. You never know what you're going to get. Sometimes you right. get people who are just so closed up because they don't want to share anything personal. And sometimes you get people who are on stage. They're performing for you. And I always kind of go in with, you know, a mindset of whoever you are, whatever you had to offer the world in the past, this moment in time, you are my client. I'm your jewelry storyteller. Now I'm going to ask you the same questions and it's going to be as it always would be with any client. And with Hassan, it was exactly that. He just started to share all of the stories of how they met, how they fell in love, you know, the ups and downs that every couple has as they're kind of going on this road towards being together forever. Right. Interspersed with the Daily Show, <laughs> this moment in LA and this moment in New York and, you know, these little moments in time that I can imagine were so incredibly important to him and to her. But ultimately, I was like, well, those are nice moments. Let's focus on the story. And he was right. always about And so I would leave each of those sessions exactly as I left every other session with every guy feeling so filled with his love for her. And I think the difference here was that he, as a creative individual, was so excited for me to just run with a very unique design. And I had a little bit of intel from Vina of what she was excited about and she wasn't okay. through that original Sandy Lion kind of connection. So I knew a little bit of what she might like and what she wouldn't like. And then ultimately when it came time for him to present the ring to her, he decided to do it in my studio. So Aww. he called me up and he said, would it be weird 
if she came over and she didn't know where she was going and you open the door and then we do it together. So that would be so fun. And then you have a photographer, you have this personal photographer just like and so there's all these and we obviously I can't share them, but there's all these beautiful photos of everyone crying, celebrating, just such romance. And then we all had the celebration dinner and and it just I, I felt in that moment that someone like him who has been so prolific, so vocal about so many right. incredibly important things. Right. He can put all of that aside to focus on one woman and focus on her love and be just like every other person in love. And to remember what really matters. Exactly. Right? Yeah. And so, and I mean, at that time, you must have been thinking, I mean, many thoughts, but it must, it must have hit you. You must have been like, this is why I'm doing this. Every single day that I speak to any single client right. and I hear the love story, I, I, I see that moment where I know I'm enabling their love and their gratitude. I mean, you don't need a ring. Right? Nobody needs a ring or a necklace or an earring. We'll never feed you. We'll never keep you warm. It is the literally least utility item you could ever put money into. But what it is, it's a reminder of the way that someone feels about you that you can look at and you can feel for the rest of your life. And if right. I am able to help one person put all of that emotion into that one piece of jewelry, then that's a reminder every day that I'm doing the right thing. And separately, when I met uh, Ashley Judd, that was the first time I'm pointing to a picture you can't see. <laughs> no, it's, it's fantastic. I love um, it. That was, I mean, that that was a whole story where I was pulled in by the Time's Up people's friend to create a ring that would celebrate the moment of Time's Up. As you know, Ashley Judd pulled the, pulled the or she blew the whistle on Harvey Weinstein right. that year. And it was a year where none of the women were going to be asked on the red carpet, what are you wearing? There's going to be much more about the social causes you care about. And in that context, I was put in touch with Ashley and I learned a little bit of her story. And in creating the ring, which itself tells a story of the fight that women have gone through for equality in Hollywood, I remember so clearly in the rainiest Friday you can imagine, walking uphill on a driveway, not knowing where the heck I was in LA with my coworker who was wearing heels and that was a disaster. <laughs> I'm wearing a tuxedo. This is random stuff, but we knew we were delivering the ring to someone. I love random stuff. Continue. Well, we thought we were meeting Samantha, Samantha McMillan, who was her stylist. But Samantha had sent an address for us to, to drop the ring off because it was very valuable. And, you know, and so we go up, we ring this doorbell, and this woman answers and says, Who are you? What are you doing here? And we sit in this kind of foyer and we're waiting for a while. And then she kind of looks at us and realizes that we're not like the other delivery people. <laughs> she had sent a truck and St. Laurent had sent a truck and all these people dressed in black, these literally children, dressed yeah. in black, running in and out with these dresses. And I'm thinking, like, where are we? So she sits <laughs> us in the room, fast forward two hours, we look on the wall and we see all these Frida Kahlo paintings. We're like, what is, what is this doing here? Yeah. And I don't know, it was the strangest thing. There's more to this story that I'm not getting into. But I will. <laughs> but so the moment curious. We see the sun hat. And we see the gliding woman, and it happens to be Ashley Judd. And as I say to my coworker, I'm like, that's Ashley Judd. And she's like, yeah, but that's not who I was expecting. I was like, who are you expecting? She said, well, Salma Hayek. I'm like, why? She said, Samir. We're at Salma Hayek's home. I'm like, how do you know that? She's like, you didn't Google the address? I'm thinking, oh my God, I'm so not millennial. Like, it didn't occur to me to Google it's the fine. address. It's fine. It's fine. It's good to be uncle and auntie ish. It's okay. So we literally get pulled up to Salma Hayek's master bedroom. And in the master bedroom, Ashley Judd is standing there in this beautiful purple Bashley Mishka, Mishka gown. And I sort of walk in, there's 30 people scurrying about her, trying to figure out what she's going to wear and how she's going to look. And she looks in the mirror and she sees a cross and she's like, well, I heard you have a ring for me. 
And I'm shaking. And you're like, yeah. <laughs> I literally shake it. I'm like, I do, I do, I do. <laughs> so much. She's like, can you tell me the story? And I was like, well, it tells the story of women in Hollywood. It has the black diamonds from Times of Movement. It also shares the five birthstones on the inside of the only five women out of 630 nominees in the history of the Oscars that were women directors. And the fifth is Greta Gerwig, which is, of course, that movie that that was nominated for Lady Bird. And so we had the bird's wings in flight in the proms, which is meant to be an ode to that movie, but also for how far women in Hollywood had to go. And she stops everyone. She turns around. She says, that's the most beautiful thing I've ever heard. I can't believe you did that. I said, well, that's from you. It's the story that we've been going back and forth through your team. She says, well, I'd love to wear it. I think this is going to be spectacular, blah, blah, blah. At that moment, I look at the wall and I see the wall is covered in jewels. There's a whole section for every brand, Cartier, Booker, Harry Harry Winston. And and I, I didn't know that she hadn't decided to wear the ring until that moment. And so she kind of comes up and I kind of come up. And there's this, I have not said this, it's probably very awkward, you may want to edit it out. And we're standing there and all of a sudden, I start to cry. I just started to cry. I would too. It's not even that, you know, Ashley Judd is someone who I, we have a history. She was at Harvard when I was at Harvard. She had fought so hard for the Ring of Muslims. She'd done so much work for animal rights. I respected her, but it wasn't like she was an icon of mine. But what was iconic is that this is a woman who at this moment in time had the courage to stand up to an entire industry. And somehow through some wild luck and chance, I was the little jewelry designer in that room with her that day who had the chance to share this with her. And we have 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and 365 days a year, of which many are spent on things that are rough. Family issues, health issues. There's so many things that are not so happy in people's lives. That when I'm working, when we're working, I want to spend those hours doing things that are beautiful, that matter, that feel like they make the hours worth living. And yes, I believe that I care about their stories. And you know, I one could argue that I go to Helsinki and sit in that church in the middle of the city and sketch those those moldings because I want the authentic representation of that grandmother's memory and ring. I'm also honestly doing it because I love it. I love to be there. I love the excitement of getting on a plane or driving down to whatever it is in Manhattan and seeing it for myself and remembering his words as he spoke about her and knowing that what I'm building and what I'm pouring into this is going to last forever. You know that I don't have children. You know that, you know, at the moment, there's all these questions of legacy. I'm not building a company that's going to be a legacy like you could argue Harvard Business School or Coca-Cola is. My legacy is going to be each of these pieces of jewelry and the story that they tell for generations. Yeah. And maybe when I'm an old man sitting on my you know, deathbed, hopefully surrounded by loving people, I'll also look at each of these rings and remember my life from the moment right. in Finland to the moments in Salma Hayek's room to the moments with Hassan and everyone else. It is your story. You are creating your story as well. And you're part of these people's journeys. You know, and so you are you are leaving a legacy just in a very Zamir unique way. So I think that's fantastic. HBS case. Let's talk about it. Yeah. Yeah. How, so when is that coming out? And tell me a little bit more about it. Well, look, again, unbelievable to me that HBS I know. It's more. amazing. I love it. It's wild. It's you know, it, I'm a I'm a nerd, I'm a junkie when it comes to this. I worked very hard to get into HBS. It continues to be the greatest pride of my life. So the idea that they would write a case about what we do is like so exciting. Right. The gist of the case is that it profiles how different the customer experience is within our organization versus a traditional jewelry organization. And right. then it shares how different the product is from both 
options. And then it really dives deep into the customer's experience and their testimonials about it. So a lot of the cases, people speaking about how they felt doing this and why they decided to do this versus other things. The reason they did it now is that the professor who has been following our business for a little while, Ryan Buell, who is an incredible, incredible person. He's a leader in the, the managing service operations of the retail space. He's always felt that if you show transparency in a business, you show the sketches or you give a sense of what we're doing behind the scenes, it not only makes the, the client or the customer feel more excited about the product, it makes the team behind the scenes feel more excited about doing what they're doing every day for that particular client. And that is kind of this beautiful circular reference of happiness that makes everyone feel more satisfied. Right. He's always felt like we had that story to share, but okay. when COVID hit, and he saw a post, this was a post that I put on Instagram, where I had been crying in my living room thinking about the demise of the business because no one could meet in person and just had no idea what to do. And I sat here with all my sketchbooks and read my old stories just to keep myself sane. And right. at the moment, he thought, wow, like, could this incredibly human connection-based business actually survive during COVID? And his hypothesis right. was, not only will it survive, it'll thrive. And he started speaking with me back then, and maybe because of his kind words, maybe because he was right and just really, you know, sort of predicted it, it has been the best year for this company because people are in this reflective state and they want to share the stories of how they fell in love with people that sometimes they're falling in love again for the first time with. Right. But the case really asks the question, how do you scale this incredibly thoughtful business with the lessons we've learned during the pandemic once the pandemic is over? How do we use the pandemic as an incredible source of information to grow exponentially? Right. And look, hey, if anyone has the answers, please, please let me know because we <laughs> no. put out the please, answers. Please DM us both. Thanks. Yeah. That's fantastic. So when does that come out? So it's already being taught, but it's being okay. privately. So we got taught to the second years at HBS last week. It's being taught across Latin America, executive education this week. But it should be released for wider consumption okay. in two weeks once the lessons of these two cohorts are then embedded in the case. The case has been refined to kind of be a little tighter. Got it. Uh, so I will let you know and I will post about it. Yes. Uh, I'm just so excited. I, I hope they invite you to back to HBS to teach that case. I definitely will never when it opens up. teach the case because I could never, <laughs> I mean, if you see the work that goes into teaching, it's just, it's like theater meets improv meets incredible intellect meets stamina. I feel like that's you. I, I feel like all of that is you, right? What, just exactly what you said, by the way. I think I think you did drink with me, and that's why you're thinking that. Cheers. <laughs> I'm hoping to go the second one. But I'll, I'll um, be there in the audience. I'll definitely be listening for all the ideas and for any support anyone can ever give to help us. <laughs> I'll come with you. I'm down. Okay. Quick, quick lightning round, because I know we're at the end of this, and I, I don't want you to ignore your client. So lightning round, obviously you know what that means. First thing that comes to your mind. Who are you dying to work with that you haven't yet? Oprah Winfrey. <laughs> well, Solid. Michelle Obama, but I gave that up because it would have to be with Barack. And I just, that's such a dream that I'm, I'm not even ready to dream that dream. No, just but, th you throw it out there, man. Well, Barack told me the, the story of how he loves Michelle. I think that I was spontaneously combust and that's it. Like there would just be nothing more I'd want in life. That's your legacy right there. It's going gonna, it's gonna to happen. I'm throwing it out there. Right, well, we've said it for the first time here. Do you have any, and this is really random, but I don't know why I thought of this. Do you have any clients that you've ever had to reject for any reason? Yes. There are okay. clients who don't have the time, who just won't give the time, and I say three hours over the course of one or two weeks, and they're just like, here's the credit card. 
make the ring. And I'm like, I can't make the ring without the story. Makes sense. Very good. Do you personally have any family heirlooms that you've kept? There's one nose pin that was left on my grandmother's nose that wasn't ripped out of her nose when they're forced into the trucks to go and leave the country. All other jewelry from my family is confiscated. That nose pin became a ring that my brother made for my mother when he opened the jewelry store on the street for the first time. In my whole life, I've always looked at that ring as being the most precious thing in the world, such that it's clear in my family that should I be so lucky to fall in love, that nose pin, which is very feminine and very Indian, will actually become my engagement ring. Okay, I did not expect that amazing story. I was like, I don't know. Oh my God, that's the most beautiful thing you've said. That's amazing. If you can say this, I don't know if you can, but the most epic proposal you've witnessed. The most epic proposal I've witnessed? Wow, that's, a, that's an... I'm sure there's many. <laughs> you know, I, I think that the most epic proposal to me, and you're going to hate this answer, isn't the proposal that involves like the Eiffel Tower or all of the romance of all the world. It's the proposal that is so personal where they go jogging every day and the ring has that in it and they go jogging on the same track. And along that track, he's planted things that are random that she kind of notices, like, why is there that bouquet of my favorite flowers? But they just keep running by it. Why did someone leave that bottle of wine, which is her favorite wine, and keep running by it? And subconsciously, she's seeing these things, but she doesn't realize it's all for her. Yeah. And no, I do love that answer because that would be my favorite as well. It has to be personal and it has to be meaningful and not just right. flashy. That flashy is easy, right? So easy. Yeah. If you had a designer ring for yourself, for your own love stories, I know there's a lot of detail to it, but what would the general shape and colors be? Oh, for the ring that I would want for my engagement ring if it weren't my mother's? Oh, 100%. You know I think about this every day. <laughs> when, Just throwing it out there. <laughs> and every ring I've ever made, I've wanted for myself, but I definitely want, and please... Someone in the future take note of this. Yeah, I'm throwing it out there for everyone. Well, Ami, Ami, as in Mirage, Ami, this is not dissimilar. I want a rectangular radiant cut diamond. That's all I definitely know, but I think that I'd want it to be a relatively wide band filled with emeralds cut diamonds. I like classic white diamonds. Obviously, I would like, you know, again, should I be so lucky for the story to be embedded in the ring? If there's no story, I don't want the ring. Right, um, right. Of course. How, how can you at this point? That would be, yeah. that would be a shocker. <laughs> if, if, if whoever, if you do get married in the future and, and your future fiance gives you something from a Sears catalog, I feel like it'll be over. <laughs> that will not Let's be clear. I just feel like that would be like the break breaking point right there. I'm putting you as president and CEO of breaking us up. You got to for me. Okay, if you weren't doing this, if the, if you weren't doing this business, what else would you be doing? I'd be a journalist. Oh, you'd be I'd so good. Traveling and learning people's stories and just trying to understand the basics. I wouldn't need to meet presidents and to serve, you know, countries or to create peace between certain parties. I would just want to know, you know, why this little old lady in this country's hands are so marred with dirt. I want to know. You should do a podcast. You would fucking kick ass. I, I would t- I would totally be like your side woman. That would be I, amazing. <laughs> You'd be I so good. I would not, but I appreciate that. That's uh, fantastic. Okay, and last question. Are you going to be ready for our next dance-off? I have been ready my whole life for our next dance-off. And listen, you are an incredible dancer. I am better. all right all right so it's not like i'm challenging you without everyone hearing but i'm listen i'm ready willing and able whenever you're in new york 
or if I have to come to Connecticut. If to I'm coming. Or- I, I'm totally fine. Tuckered Out is hosted by me, Ami Tucker. This episode is produced by Jeannie Media with Jeannie Saraswathi, Ashley Tuff, Micah Sweetman, Hans Andres, and Laura Radescu. You can follow me at Tuckered Out Podcast on Instagram. And please subscribe, rate, and review wherever you get your podcasts.